This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of Colorado's fiercest disability rights activists is being remembered at a memorial service today. For decades, lawyer Carrie Ann Lucas fought for parents and children with disabilities, for better access to public facilities, and against the repeal of Obamacare. In 2017, before a key congressional vote, Lucas took part in a two-day sit-in at Republican Senator Cory Gardner's office. She led fellow protesters in a chant as they were arrested. Rather go to jail than to die without Medicaid. Rather and when she was the last one left, she refused to help police move her wheelchair or her ventilator. I'm not resisting, but I'm not cooperating okay. in my arrest. Take her property from her. She's under arrest. Take her phones. Carrie Ann Lucas died Sunday at age 47. One of her longtime friends is Julie Riskin, who leads Colorado's Cross Disability Coalition. She told me Lucas became a lawyer because of a personal experience with discrimination. She decided to adopt a daughter, and that was awesome. And she adopted another child. Both children had disabilities. The adoption was going forward, and then the family that had given up this child decided they didn't want the child living with two other disabled people and disrupted the adoption and took her back. And unfortunately put this child who used a wheelchair in an inaccessible home. Most people would just get depressed and give up because that was an awful, horrifying experience. Carrie went to law school because she wanted to practice family law and she wanted to disrupt the pervasive bias that said people who have disabilities can't be parents. There's a history of that, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As someone with a disability, I can say when my kids were growing up, they weren't afraid of the boogeyman. They were afraid of social services. With the idea that people with disabilities don't have the ability to take care of children like able-bodied parents. Exactly. Uh, So what specifically did Carrie fight for? So she actually got a law passed last year, and that took away the presumption that disability is a problem. When Human Services goes in and and investigates, they have a list of risk factors that they look at. Until last year, disability was on that, when actually, particularly when the child might have a disability, we see it as an advantage because we understand we can provide them a context of disability as a positive thing, of disability pride. And that was something Carrie was really into. It seems to me that the natural thing would just be to test it. In other words, if you're going to contend that having a disability is somehow making you a less capable parent, prove it. Like, as opposed to just making the assumption. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world. Unfortunately, there are not lawyers banging down the door to represent people with disabilities. So many parents with disabilities were in these awful situations where they were being unfairly targeted and there was no one to stand up for them and say, prove it. When you're a subject of an investigation by the government, you can't just say prove it. You don't have that power Mm. unless you have a lawyer by your side. And Carrie was that lawyer for many, many people. And then in the last couple years of her life, the state actually recruited her and said, work for us. Help us train other lawyers and judges for a better system. The boogeyman said, come help me. In other words, those that perhaps she and her family were most afraid of then enlisted her help. Yes. That's fascinating. I think she ended up adopting four children. She did. Now young adults with 
uh, severe disabilities themselves. Gary had a rare form of muscular dystrophy. How did she manage? I'm smiling when you said that because Carrie was a force of nature. She didn't manage. She just made things happen. And she gave her kids an incredibly full life that would exhaust any parent, disabled or not. They were a very Colorado family, so they went camping, they went fishing, they went in the mountains. All of her kids were involved in all sorts of activities. Her kids were integrated in the schools. She had high expectations of all of them. Being a mother was her number one job, and she made it happen. But she did that also while working full time and living with a significant disability. And I don't want to sound glib or make it sound like it was easy. Of Mm -hmm. course, it wasn't easy, but it was what was really important to her. And being a single parent has challenges for anyone with or without a disability. Okay, so you mentioned her activism on behalf of families. I have to think about the last time that Carrie Ann Lucas was on Colorado Matters, and it was around when a ballot measure was being debated about um, ending one's life if you were in some sort of terminal situation. And she was fiercely opposed to this. Voters approved this in in 2016. But why don't we just hear a little bit of Carrie Ann Lucas's reasoning for opposing it? As an individual with a severe disability myself, I'm a quadriplegic. I I use a ventilator uh, full-time. I have seen how my life has been devalued by the medical system. I've been discouraged from seeking medical treatments before in the past, medical treatments that have extended my life by more than a decade. I've also seen my children who also have disabilities. I've seen their lives be devalued. And so she thought of the Colorado End of Life Options Act as a slippery slope. The medical system does devalue those of us with disabilities because they see non-disabled is the goal. They see being, quote-unquote, healthy is the goal, and they equate being healthy with having a perfect body. And when someone has a major life change of any kind, whether it is acquiring a disability, getting a divorce, losing their home, that can be very devastating, and it can lead to depression. All of us grow up in a world that devalues disability and says disability is a tragedy, not that disability is a normal part of the human existence. So when one acquires a disability, especially as an adult... Through an accident or something like that. Through an accident, an illness, whatever, Mm -hmm. one can be terrified, devastated, and they're depressed, and they go to a doctor and say, I want to end my life, and they might have a condition that without intervention could result in death. Our fear is that a doctor would say, oh, of course you don't want to live like that. Instead of what we all do or should do when we see someone who is so depressed that they're suicidal, which is we intervene, we show them options, say, you know, you can always make that decision later. You believe that this devaluing of the lives of people with disabilities uh, may have led to her death. Absolutely, I believe that. Last January, she caught a cold, which when you're on a ventilator is serious. She got an infection in her lung and her trachea. She knew from experience and her doctors knew from experience that she needed a very specific type of antibiotic. This is very common for people with disabilities. When you've had a lot of infections or hospitalizations, you get where there's only a cup, one or maybe two antibiotics you can use because you, your body becomes resistant. Mm. Her doctor said she needed this. Her insurance company, United Healthcare, refused to pay for it. She 
had filed 30 appeals by that time on different issues with United Health Insurance, which she had to take as a state employee above her Medicaid and Medicare, which actually do provide the care that she would have needed. But by that point, she had to start with a less effective antibiotic, which really caused a cascade of problems. We asked United Healthcare for a response to those allegations. They issued the following statement We are saddened to hear of Ms. Lucas's passing. While we cannot provide any comment on her specific case because of privacy rules, we work extensively with members suffering from chronic conditions to help them get access to care covered under their plans. This is Colorado Matters, and if you're just joining us, we are remembering the lawyer and disability rights activist Carrie Ann Lucas. She died Sunday. I'm speaking with her friend Julie Riskin of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. Back to her activism, uh, you know, listening at the beginning to that protest in Senator Gardner's office, I guess, how how would I put this? She was not always a diplomat. Oh, no. (laughs) Absolutely. She could be assertive. Yeah. And a lot of people took that as anger. And this applies to people of color often experience this and people with disabilities. When we're assertive and we're strong and we're clear, people think that that's anger. They take that tone as anger. And a lot of times with people with disabilities, people think that we're angry at having a disability, which she wasn't. She loved her life. She was angry at inaccessibility. She was angry when people didn't follow the laws. And she was angry when people made assumptions about her without bothering to learn the facts. That would make anyone angry. But she wasn't an angry person. She was actually a very content and happy person. But she was very strong and very assertive. And often when we don't act like apologists, people think that we're angry. She was not ever going to apologize for her existence or the existence of her children. We reached out to another activist, Kaylin Heffernan, mm-hmm. the rap musician and now candidate for Denver mayor. Um, she was also at that 2017 protest at Senator Gardner's office. She's considerably younger than Carrie and uh, viewed her as a driving force for the movement. Carrie and Lucas uh, fought really hard every day. And I know that she would want us to continue fighting and continue sharing what we know with the rest of our community because everything we do is complicated. What kind of gap does Carrie Lucas's passing leave in the fight for disability rights here in Colorado? A huge, uh, unfillable gap. Um particularly on the issue of parenting with a disability, she was the person. She'd lived it. She lived it, and she had the legal background. What do you think is a, a passion project of hers, though, that, that might get carried on? Or what is next in the fight that she was ready to take on? I know that what she was planning to do in 2019 was spending time really going public about our broken health care system. Of the that she had experienced in the past, you know, for her whole life, but particularly in the past year. How would Carrie feel about you kind of fawning on her right now? She would be anywhere between, you know, rolling her eyes or ready to kick my butt. Um, in the disability community, there's a term we use called inspiration porn. It feels really awful when people think that when you have a disability and you live your life, that that somehow makes you inspirational. Because it isn't. Even the situation that we're dealing with, the anger and outrage over what happened to her with the insurance company, 
that happens to people every single day. The reason we're talking about it, and and this is exactly what Carrie would want, is because she did have a lot of accomplishments and she has the megaphone, as, as one of our friends put it. But don't turn it into inspiration porn. That's right. Julie, thanks for being with us and sorry for your loss. Thank you. Julie Riskin is executive director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, and she was remembering her friend, disability rights activist Carrie Ann Lucas, who died Sunday at age 47. A memorial service is today in her hometown of Windsor, Colorado. Try to guess where these next sounds come from. Sounds kind of otherworldly. In fact, that's from Earth, specifically an Antarctic ice shelf that hums as the wind blows over it. These sounds were discovered by geophysicists at Colorado State University, And they're not just a novelty. They could be an important gauge of climate change. Professor Rick Astor is on the phone. Hi, Rick. Good morning. These sounds specifically come from the Ross ice shelf, and they aren't normally audible to the human ear, I understand. You have to speed them up to hear them. What do they sound like to you? I wonder what you make of them. Well, uh, my first impression was that uh, sometimes they sound a bit like a didgeridoo. Okay. Um, but they're they're totally complex, certainly. Totally complex. Yes, they they do indeed vary, uh, which is why I suppose it seems almost like the Earth is singing. Explain why the pitch varies. We um, decided after a quite a uh, testing a lot of hypotheses that uh, the uh, tones are being excited by the wind blowing across the subtle topography on this vast flat ice shelf, which is, after all, the size of Texas, but usually only a few hundred meters thick and floating on the ocean. So as the wind blows across these uh, small dunes of snow, um, it produces tones that get trapped in the surface of the ice shelf, and our sensitive seismographs pick them up. So that's the sound of the snow being blown about at the top of the ice shelf? Well, it's more complex than that. The, the wind's actually pushing on the, uh, on the ice shelf and creating seismic waves. You discovered these vibrations through seismometers, which, you know, I normally think of as, as used to track earthquakes. How, how could this information be helpful to you? Well, uh, as these waves are trapped in the near surface of the ice shelf, they provide a physical measure of the, of the properties of that uh, near surface environment on the ice shelf. How strong it is, uh, we discovered that as the snow changes, and in particular, as the temperature warms, these tones change. So they can tell us, uh, for instance, if the near surface of the ice shelf is uh, approaching melting or even undergoing a little bit of, of melting. Fascinating. So I have a feeling that that has all kinds of implications, perhaps, for climate change? Well, indeed. Um, Antarctic ice shelves are a very important component of the, of the uh, glacial system. They act a bit like a cork in the bottle. They keep these enormous glaciers in the interior of Antarctica from flowing more rapidly into the ocean and uh, raising global sea level. So uh, it's really important to uh, be able to assess their health and understand if they are um, collapsing, and we 
have seen some examples in the far north part of Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula where ice shelves have collapsed. Uh, we want to be able to understand on what time scale that's happening and uh, understand what the processes are. Does that mean that you'd want to embed sort of permanent uh, versions of this technology down there, or maybe that's already the case versus, I don't know, you know, video or cameras that track this? Well, certainly this is uh, just one tool in the uh, in the toolbox for studying ice shells. In this case, it's got an advantage in that seismographs are relatively easy to deploy. We uh, just have to bury a sensor a few meters down from the surface yeah. and let it run. And uh, they provide minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day, month-to-month, and year-to-year uh, assessments of the uh, state of the, of the near surface of the ice shelf that could be hard to uh, determine by other methods, digging snow pits and so forth. Could this happen with other um, globs of snow and ice? What about even like sand dunes? I just wonder if this, this translates to other types of topography. Yeah, it, it turns out there are lots of ways uh, geophysically that the Earth can sing. And sand dunes indeed can make uh, uh, music-like tones, but it's a different process caused by uh, falling sand grains along dunes. This is, as far as we know, the first observation uh, in detail of this sort of uh, phenomenon in uh, in Antarctic snow and ice, but we suspect it's far more uh, widespread and uh, it should occur in other places where you have large, flat ice shells with this type of snow and ice combination. Before we go, just give us the big picture. What is the effect on the rest of the planet with ice shelves melting? Yeah, as I mentioned, ice shelves are really a critical part of the uh, stabilization of uh, glaciers that are coming off of Antarctica. There's an incredible amount of ice in Antarctica on land. Over 90% of Earth's ice is there. And these ice shells help restrain uh, these enormous glaciers from bringing ice more rapidly into the uh, into the ocean, where it melts and raises global sea level. It's a really important component of uh, you know the feedback system that keeps the ice stable in Antarctica. And once these ice shells uh, collapse, uh, as we've seen in a few places in the Antarctic Peninsula, the glaciers uh, inland do indeed speed up and deliver more ice to the ocean, which rapidly melts. That is Rick Astor, geophysics professor at CSU. He and his team discovered Antarctica's singing ice shelf. We spoke in the fall. Now let's visit a ghost town. Think abandoned miners' shacks with squeaky doors, decrepit storefronts lining a deserted main street, Or it could be bleaker than that, empty prairie where a town once stood. Those are the kinds of places Ron Ruhoff of Genoa, Colorado, likes to visit. He's the last remaining charter member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado. Hi, Ron. Hello there, Ryan. You visit ghost towns both with the club and by yourself. I understand there's one near Telluride that's among your favorites. Will you tell us about it? Well, down near Telluride, there's a beautiful ghost town called Alta. It's got to be the most photogenic place with old buildings in the foreground and the beautiful San Miguel Range in the back. It's an interesting town. It was still alive up until about 1945, people working the Gold King Mine. 
And that particular mine had a, had a very special uh, feature because the very first alternating current power plant, hydro plant, was built right there to run the machinery in that mine. And it was uh, built by George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla. My goodness, we, we recognize both of those names, for sure, right. Westinghouse and Tesla. And that uh, power plant is still in operation today, of course, not the original equipment. But there's a lot to see in Alta, and is it that, that anyone can just walk in? You can go up there. There's a four-mile dirt road off Colorado Highway 145, just south of Telluride. But uh, no, no big problem to go up there in a car. And uh, the three Alta lakes are there, some nice fishing and camping. What explains its decline? It was probably the uh, wartime, for one thing, and uh, lack of uh, ore, uh, worthwhile ore, had pretty well run out. It was primarily gold in that mine. I understand there are some 700 ghost towns in Colorado. Oh, what, yes. What makes a ghost town? Like, Does it have to be completely abandoned? Well, there are probably several different kinds of ghost towns. Huh. There's, uh, of, out of those 700, probably at least 500 of them, there's really nothing left anymore. You wouldn't necessarily that, see that there's a town there. But uh, there used to be. And places like that are fun to see, even if you're looking in an open meadow and happen to have an old photograph with you that shows what was there a hundred years ago. Do a little of your own before and after. Would you give us an example of a town like that? Well, one might be uh, up at uh, Camp Hale on Tennessee Pass. That was a military camp during World War II, and it was a tremendous place. Eventually, it was all torn down, and you go by that big meadow today, and you see some concrete foundations, and that's about all that remains. Okay, so that's one kind of ghost town, the kind that really uh, is empty today, has no structures, and that's the the bulk of them. What other kinds of ghost towns are there? Well, we have the kind that has several buildings still remaining, but no one lives there anymore. And uh, we have examples of that such as Ascroft over near Aspen, Independence up on Highway 82 above Aspen, and uh, Alta is one, yeah. Carson above Lake City. And I gather where you're headed next is that there are some ghost towns perhaps with minimal population, but That's not right. completely abandoned. That's right. How, does, how is that a ghost town? In other words, there are people there. Well... I think ghost town uh, is has been applied to towns with people uh, maybe Hollywood western movies got that term started uh-huh. and pretty much fits uh towns of the old mining towns uh, in the west but there are ghost towns everywhere for many reasons uh, as an example when uh the interstate highway system was built in our country just think how many towns all across the country that were bypassed on the old U.S. highways. And many of them became ghost towns because they lost all their commerce. And some of them are still there, but very few people remaining. Yeah, how about a few examples of of ghost towns where there are just a few people remaining? St. Elmo. Let's, let's talk about St. Elmo. That's, oh, this is that's one of, my one of the first places. ones I ever visited. And that is up above Buena Vista. And 
it was on the Denver South Park and Pacific Narrowgauge Railway in the early days. And when I first visited in 1955, there was a big, long main street just full of buildings. All appeared to be abandoned, but there were a few people around. I think of St. Elmo as the place where you feed the wild chipmunks. That's right. Yeah. So this is between, as you say, Buena Vista and Salida. But I actually think of that as a place with a lot of life these days. It, it is. It, it it's might... coming back to life. Uh-huh. So that's possible. I suppose it's rare, but it's possible. A lot to... of places are like that. How vulnerable are the ghost towns that still have structures left? Uh, are they very prone to vandalism? And is uh, is that part of what you try to prevent as a member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado? Well, it's it's something that is a big problem with a lot of the old towns and individual buildings, not only because of weather, gradually weathering and heavy winter snows collapsing the buildings, right. but uh, that beautiful old weathered wood that that makes the walls on, on buildings uh, is an attraction to uh, take home and build something at home with. And we've had a lot of buildings disappear for that reason. And preservation is something we really try to tell people about. about. Is, is it plainly illegal to do that, to go it to is. a ghost town and Antiquities take— Antiquities Act. Okay. And uh, so it is an illegal thing to take things from a town. Is there an example of a town that the club is focused on at the moment? Animus Forks, north of Silverton. A uh, lot of buildings still there. Huh. And the club has gotten involved in years past in rebuilding or shoring up some of the old structures there. What does it look like? Oh, that's a neat town. The uh, The old Bay Window Home uh, is one of the main structures there that has remained for so many years. And uh, a few years back, the club got together with tools and carpentry materials and went up and helped fix the floors and the roofing and shore up the foundation and now in even more recent years, the Silverton Historical Society has worked on that quite a lot. And uh, now the town, even ha- that building has windows in it. I was going to say, if it's windows. known for the for the bay windows, it ought to have glass in the windows. Is there a, a ghost town that you have not seen yet that you'd like to see? Well, one of them is uh, Lulu City. It's up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I understand there's not much left these days, but it'd be fun to go see it. If you drive up to Trail Ridge Road from Granby, you would be able to uh, hike back in off one of the switchbacks on the highway there, about four miles, I think, to Lulu City. I never did that. Okay. There's still time. Ron, thanks for being with us. Ron Ruhoff of Genoa is a founding member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado. We spoke back in October. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.